Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The next president of the United States won't be sworn in for another eight months, but the transition from the Obama administration to the next president is already underway. While Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton only became their party's presumptive nominees last week, President Obama is encouraging a smooth transition and what is a very dangerous time in the world. Obama may not have agreed with his predecessor, George W. Bush, on much, but Obama did give Bush credit for a transition that made it easier for him. Officially launched in January of this year, the Center for Presidential Transition is a project of the Partnership for Public Service. The center is designed to help presidential candidates navigate the transition process, prepare political appointees to lead effectively through the Ready to Govern training initiative, and work with the outgoing administration to encourage a smooth transfer of power. Joining us is David Eagles, director of the Center for Presidential Transition. Mr. Eagles, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott, and thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment, this is something you don't normally get a whole lot to hear, get to hear about a whole lot, so maybe you have some questions. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You know, as I was writing my scripts and thinking about the program, uh, Mr. Eagles, I was thinking, well, this seems like it's, it's awful early, that uh, we're still eight months away from this, but there is some precedent for from precedent for starting early but why has the presidential transition begun so soon you know I, I think there's a couple of things at play here one is just the nature of transitions have changed drastically even from eight years ago uh, these transitions are are big and getting bigger I mean these teams are inheriting four million federal employees essentially a four trillion dollar budget uh, these are these are very complex tasks as well and typically done by folks who haven't done them before uh, and really, it's a period of vulnerability for the country. And so uh, I always equate this to basically a, a big, large, epic corporate takeover where your top employees all quit the same day when the new president comes in, uh, and you have virtually no due diligence in the process. And so that's why we're asking the teams to start earlier than ever before, even though there is some precedent there, uh, to be able to govern and lead the country on day one. Is this the earliest that a transition has ever begun? You know, I would say it's the earliest that there's been a formal transition ever. Uh, and historically, you know, historically, this, this whole episode of transition has been a little bit like the movie The Candidate, the, the Robert Redford movie The Candidate, where you basically, you've won the election and you look around to your campaign manager and you say, oh my goodness, now what? And uh, there's only 73 days between the election and the inauguration. It's not nearly enough time, particularly when you've got 4,000 political appointees that you've got to appoint and prepare and you've got to execute on your campaign promises. And granted, we're in the middle of the silly season now, but uh, historically these teams uh, haven't gotten their people in. And a year after they've been elected, they've had less than 30% of their people in office, which, which is, is ridiculous. And they're not ready to execute on the campaign promises. They're still figuring out how to execute on their campaign promises. This is what historically has happened. And so uh, why not take advantage of the political capital that you have from Congress and from the American public to execute? Uh, you need to be ready on day one to keep the country safe and prosperous. And the candidates have bought into that, hence the earliest start formally that we've seen. Uh, and we hope to be drastic, drastically different results at the end of the day as well. You mentioned the movie The Candidate, but uh, I, I read an article 
in the magazine The Atlantic uh, from a few weeks ago that uh, used words like ad hoc, fly by night. Now, these were people being quoted who have gone through transitions. That's, uh, doesn't, that doesn't make me feel very secure as an American hearing that the transition or, or you know, that fly by night and ad hoc. You know, it's interesting. It is. It is not to not to belabor the movie analogies, but it is a little bit like Groundhog Day, and it's it's the same episode where we're reinventing the wheel every time. And I was on, uh, I was on just even four years ago the Romney transition effort because again, you have to think about it that way. This is before the election. These teams are standing up virtually now, uh, and you even then are reinventing the wheel to try to find that person who's done this before. You're literally on the phone saying, "Hey, listen, how did you staff up your White House?" What are these positions? How did you source your talent for these positions? All these campaign promises, what's it like to actually execute them? These are all questions that every new team historically has had to to invent from scratch. And that's what the Center for Presidential Transition is trying to do, is to really be that central clearinghouse to create a learning system to build from. And uh, we should improve the transition at this point uh, each cycle now. Yeah, I want to talk about all the things you've mentioned so far a little more specifically, but how did the Center for Presidential Transition come to be? You know, it's been it's been evolving over the years, and we're a part of the Partnership for Public Service that's committed to making government more effective. And I think the partnership recognized basically eight years ago this uh, this phenomenon of the transitions are a reinvent the wheel exercise. I mean, you have to you have to recognize that that again, they've changed so drastically that even if you remember John Kerry's effort when he ran for president, uh, he had the largest pre-election transition effort in history. He had what essentially was three or four guys, and I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but they were in a garage or in a basement quietly planning out you know, if he won, who would lead the country, and how he'd execute his campaign promises. And again, it was taboo. It was presumptuous to talk about governing the country and talking about transition. You know, fast forward eight years ago to, to now President Obama, uh, he had 150 or 200 people all pre-election thinking about transition. And then fast forward four years ago to, to Governor Romney, there were about 400 people all in thinking about transition. So these things have changed drastically. This is why you haven't talked about it or you haven't heard about it a lot. And uh, and this is we recognize the, the nature of what these transition teams are doing. We recognize that they can be done so much better. And when you, again, when you dig into the issue, you realize that uh, you can't fix the airplane while you're flying. This is really the only unique time that candidates and their teams have to think about how to really improve government. And even eight years after Obama's been elected, there's still a very senior vacancy rate in the federal government of about 20 to 25 percent. So about one in four or one in five senior positions are vacant today. And that's not a slam on Obama. That's been every modern president. And when you trace the issue back, you realize it's because they're getting off on the wrong foot. And they're not getting their people in early. And, again, you can't play catch-up and you can't fix that plane while you're flying it. And so we've got to do so much better on the onset. And when we've mapped this process out, there's so much more that we can do to make it so much better. What is most important for the incoming president to know? You know, I'd say there's a a couple of things. One is, uh, first of all, you're inheriting a massive apparatus that's there to serve you. And, again, I mentioned the size of the federal government. Uh, Those folks are there. They're ready to execute your vision. And I think what's happened historically is these new teams have come in. They've got a, a mandate from the American public to execute on their campaign promises. And because they're not ready to execute, what they traditionally have done is huddled in their conference rooms and closed the door. And they've pushed out the career civil service workforce. They haven't engaged them because they themselves aren't ready. 
And so I think one of the things that we can drastically change is if those teams are ready to execute, you know what's going on in the federal government. There should be a lot more collaboration inside government to execute much more effectively. And so they're there to help you. That's one, I'd say, critical area. Secondly, you've got a ton of people you've got to get in. Again, you've got 4,000 appointments, of which I would call it the top four to 500 positions are really the most critical to execute on your priorities. And historically, it's taken one year or two years to get the majority of these people in. And again, you can do so much better. And the expectations of these new incoming teams should be so much higher. Uh, to get off on the right foot. And I'd say that's a big part of what they need to know early. You know, there are many candidates running for president who say, from day one, I'll be ready to lead. On day one, we're going to do this. From what you're describing, okay, now that's that's a political, that's a campaign promise. But from what you're describing, the politics doesn't concern me. The promise doesn't concern me as much as some of the other things that you mentioned earlier, that the country is vulnerable at that point, national security issues, or when Obama took office, we were in the midst of an economic crisis. Uh, so I don't know. I would think that most people wouldn't be as concerned about campaign promises as they would the other things. Well, you, you, you've highlighted a great point here. It is a period of vulnerability for the country. Uh, you know, I go back to Josh Bolton, who was the outgoing chief of staff in the George W. Bush administration, uh, who speaks often about uh, that essentially there was a credible threat on Inauguration Day uh, for President Obama. And, and he was essentially the only one in the White House. And by then, uh, for your listeners, I mean, they basically pulled the hard drives out of the computers. All the files are all gone. I mean, they've basically been shipped off on these big military jets the night before to the presidential libraries. So any of these new incoming teams are, are not coming in with instruction manuals. I mean, there's not something that you sit down and say, okay, here's how you, here's what you do day to day. I mean, nothing like that exists. Uh, and so that's really an interesting time uh, in between the, the, the presidents. And it's something that we've certainly studied. Uh, it's something we can do a lot better on. And I'll say that coordination amongst uh, uh, the security apparatus in D.C. is a lot better. Um, and so I think folks can feel like we're doing a lot better job there. Now, you said that uh, and it has been reported that there was a credible threat on Inauguration Day in uh, 2009 when uh, President Obama took office. Is the nation's military on higher alert? I mean, D.C., we know security would be tight, but the rest of the country uh, for, for national security reasons. You know, I, I think they – my guess is they take it on case by case, just depending on what, uh, what information they have at the time. But I'll say something that that's uh, – you know, we're certainly taking that very seriously because, again, it is a period of vulnerability for the country. Uh, coordination has to be tight. Again, the good news is there's a large 4 million employee apparatus that's there to help, and, and, but the issue really is how you make decisions. And so that's actually one of the interesting things that have happened, and that's one of the big changes that have happened over the last – uh, eight years. There have been several new pieces of legislation uh, that Congress has passed that we've been very involved with, uh, one of which is requires actually what we call tabletop exercises with the incoming and outgoing cabinets. So it's really fascinating to think about this, but they will have uh, outgoing cabinet secretaries sitting what I would call side saddle uh, with the incoming cabinet secretaries, and they're basically going through several scenarios learning how decisions are made. That's only happened once before in history, and it was something that Josh Bolton actually put together. It was an idea they had coming out of 9-11 that we've got to be much more prepared. They put it together. We really learned from that, and now we actually codified it into law. Um, I would say another big part of legislation that's new, and it's an interesting one, 
is, is the there was a bill that passed about a month and a half ago that was signed by the president, which basically uh, ensures coordinating councils with the outgoing administration. So it's fascinating to think about this. But if a president's running for reelection, obviously not this cycle, but let's say in four years, the last thing that president wants to think about is his transitioning out of office. And so historically, when presidents have run for reelect, there's been very little, if no, coordination with potential incoming teams. And so there has been a mad scramble. Uh, that has occurred after the election if someone has won. We're trying to eliminate that. There's earlier coordination. There's an opportunity to do a lot better, and that's what we're really trying to push. Now, is your organization, uh, the Center for Presidential Transition, sanctioned by the federal government? Uh, How did, because I know already, in fact, maybe you can describe this, that you've been working with uh, the the teams, the uh, presidential teams already on what they need to know. But are Mm -hmm. you sanctioned by the government? No, we're not. So we're a, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, again, committed, committed to making this the most successful transition in history. There's no obligation for the candidates to work with us. I'll say this, though, and like you say, we've, we've, we've already begun engaging with the candidates. At the time, this was about three or four weeks ago, there were five candidates in the race. We met with all five candidates' senior staff. Uh, at a retreat to talk about how do you set up and organize effectively, what are these appointee positions, how do you execute on your campaign promises, and a little bit about the vulnerability aspects that you had brought up. Uh, and, and I think they've really bought into the vision here, because as we've looked this through and we've spent a lot of time studying this process now, they see that the opportunities for the next president are massive. Again, you can double, if not triple, the amount of appointees that you're getting through, regardless of who's in the Senate. Just if you draw this out early, you start early and you plan well, you can actually execute on your campaign promises on day one. Historically, presidents haven't been able to do that, and we're showing them the way to do it. I mean, again, this is like an epic corporate takeover. And I go back to there are entire industries built around supporting corporations with M&A, uh, helping them with their strategies. And it's just so bizarre to me that as you dig into this, there's virtually nothing. There has been virtually nothing to support the most largest, complex, and powerful entity in the world. Uh, and again, that's what we're trying to fill. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing transitioning to the next president. Our guest is David Eagles, director of the Center for Presidential Transition. If you have questions or comments, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Now, we received an email here from Joe who wants to know, could it be that the federal government gets bigger and bigger, more and more overreaching its reason for the earlier and earlier transition? Now, there may be some politics behind his question, but does the size of the federal government have anything to do with starting earlier? Well, I'd say certainly that, the, that you certainly see a growth uh, in the size of the government, and that and the nature of that government being the size that it is, you're right, you do need to start earlier. But what I'll say is actually countered a little bit to that, too, is that I think historically what new teams have done because they don't have proper planning, because they're not doing due diligence on what actually is happening in the government, so they're coming in with their ideas, and they give, they give a quick assessment, and they realize, in order to implement my ideas, I'm going to implement more layers of rules and regulations, and it's a little bit like a wedding cake. You just get you know, additional layers of icing on this cake. And so I think this is the unique time where these teams can actually take a step back. And so uh, to your questioner, uh, to your listener's point, if, if that were a goal of, of an incoming uh, campaign and president – to reduce the size, this is really the time to think about it, to take a step back, to understand what's happening in the government, to be able to actually execute on that, because there's a lot you can do. There are actually a, there's a lot of authority 
that uh, these presidents have. And it's interesting, we had a conversation just a few weeks ago, and that was one of the big takeaways. But you really, you underestimate the authority of an incoming president very early, that halo effect that you get from the American public. So you have to take advantage of it. So this is really the only unique time uh, to make those types of decisions, because historically they're not ready. They're six months into their administration, they're not ready, or they've been hit with a crisis or a terrorism event. Something's gotten them off the ball. And so what you end up doing is just adding more rules and layers, and it just gets more complex. President Obama, as I said in my introduction, has given the Bush administration a lot of credit for helping them to make a smooth transition. Uh, did that set a precedent? It really did. I mean, I think that's, uh, again, one of the big takeaways from the Bush administration was was 9-11. And I think that really changed their mentality throughout their presidency. Uh, they took... The, the, again, they recognized the vulnerability that this country is in during that time of transition, and they took it very seriously. And so they started early. They focused on the handoff. They engaged the Obama team very early. It's the earliest formally that it had been done. But still, uh, again, they, they invented that from scratch. And so we've learned a lot from that, and that's what we're really trying to improve. So not only are we what I would say is the outgoing administration and, and with President Obama is committed to making the most successful transition, he has started earlier but also what we're doing, working very closely with the incoming teams on is how they coordinate with that. Uh, and again, ultimately, you should see much different results here. You know, we live in such a partisan uh, society today, uh, especially in Washington. And if you go by what the candidates say about one another, what the campaigns say about one another, uh, you would think that it would be very awkward at the very least for opposing candidates' teams to be in the same room and working together. But from what I understand, that's not the case. You know, it, it was actually fascinating for me. And if I took a step back from that event, you know, I was very proud to be an American at that point. And, you know, I think the analogy used was everyone laid down their swords, uh, came in and talking about how did you govern the country and how do you govern it well. And I think that's what you see in the candidates. The court, I mean, they, they believe very strongly in what they believe in. They say it very strongly. But at the end of the day, we're all Americans and we're trying to improve the lives of everyday citizens. And so uh, I, I was very pleased with that. And I'll say that all the candidates, all three that are remaining, uh, take this issue very seriously. Uh, they're working very closely with us. They understand that they can do so much better. And that, that just makes me very proud. And it was totally nonpartisan. There were never any partisan tones. I mean, I think we all rose above that to try to move this country forward. Mm. You mentioned that you worked on the Romney transition team. And uh, from what I understand, uh, the Mitt Romney campaign, well, I don't know whether I should say the campaign, the transition, the transition team was well ahead of uh, anything that had happened in the, in the past. Uh, that it was described, again, in that article that I read, as almost like a miniature government ready to go on, on day one. Not a full government, as you you said there are so many appointees that need to be confirmed by the Senate, and it's almost impossible to do that in the amount of time you have. But that, what was it, four to six hundred people were in place? Yeah, you had about four hundred. Um, the vast majority of those were volunteers. I mean, you know, end of the day, you probably had 150 or so really full time folks there. But you're right, I think they were ready. And so, what was different about that effort? There were a couple things. One, again, the legislative environment had changed. So now, uh, the federal government actually provides support for these transition teams at the convention. So historically, you've gotten nothing. I mean, you would, you'd win the election. Again, you'd look around and say, okay, now what? And the government said, okay, here, actually, we're here to help you, and we have space. Uh, that now has been moved to the convention. So formally, when you have a Republican or Democratic nominee, there is space to think about this. There's logistics and computers that the federal government's providing so you can plan for this. And I'll say the Romney team went to town on it. And and they really moved the needle, I'd say, in terms of transition planning. And we've learned a lot from them. 
uh, because again, it's it's uh, it's all virgin country in terms of, of thinking about this. And uh, take any issue you want. Again, if it's around the 4,000 appointees, what do they do and how do you source them? Again, you can't find job descriptions on these positions. So there's no requirements of these roles. Uh, and so therefore, how do you source qualified talent against those roles if you don't know what the requirements of the roles are? And so that's these are all very basic questions that I think we're all asking ourselves now. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do here at the center is develop those job descriptions, talk about how we source talent against them, talk about how you can execute your campaign promises. Those are all things that we can do. You know, Mr. Eagles, one of the things we try to do in this program is being, bring some historic perspective to uh, these issues. And I don't know whether you're in a position to answer some of these things, but uh, there have been stories of mischief in the past. I mean, the most recent was between the Clinton and Bush administrations, there were reports of the W's being removed mm-hmm. from keyboards. Uh, do you know of, and I'm, again, I'm asking you a question, I don't know whether you're prepared to answer as far as history. Are there, is, is there some historic pres, uh, a precedent for a less than smooth uh, transition between administrations? Oh, there are a lot. It's really been littered with them. I, mean, I think you can, there have been some really, really bad transitions. I mean, I think one of the worst to me was uh, between Hoover and Roosevelt, <clears throat> excuse me, right in the early, late 20s, early 30s. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, you basically had a lame duck president at that point that essentially refused to play ball and just didn't participate in the process, didn't engage with the incoming president. And in those days, it was actually interesting. The election was in November, but the inauguration was in March. And so you had about a six-month period of time where you had a true lame duck president, where essentially Hoover had checked out at that point. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of a banking crisis in the 30s. You had thousands of banks failing at that point, and no one at the helm to really take decisions. And so that's a classic example of a poor transition. But what I'll say is every transition has been poor. I mean, every modern president has really gotten off on the wrong foot. Uh, And I think that's one of the things that we're really trying to change is the expectations of the American public to say that we can do a lot better. Again, if you have less than a third of your people through almost a year after you've been elected, you know, when you look at the data that these folks aren't executing on their promises, they're making quick reactive decisions very early. Uh, They're not carrying forward the things that are working well in government. So they start from scratch and they start new, which is just a a terrible way to manage a business. Your listeners know that. Uh, Those are the things that we can change. And no president really has done it well. I think this is really the first time in history where we're starting early, we're starting right, we're starting prepared, and, and we're engaged with both the outgoing and the incoming, trying to connect the dots and do a lot better. And again, end of the day, I think you should see that, you know, vastly different results. And whatever the promises are of the candidate, uh, I'm sure America's better off for it. Let's take a phone call now from Sharon in Lewisburg. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I have a basically a nonpartisan question, which is, um, you know, a lot of people who run for office have been vetted. They've gotten security clearances. They have a long history of service to our country, Governor Romney, obviously, um, being a good case in point. But I've been reading about this uh, fellow, Paul Manafort, who is the head of Donald Trump's campaign, and he has advised uh, Viktor Yanukovych from Ukraine, who's an ally of Putin. He's lobbied for the Kashmiri American Council, which has been shown to be a front group for Pakistan's spy agency, the ISI. He's lobbied for the international arms dealer, Abdul Raham el In short, Paul Manafort has really done business with essentially enemies of our nation. So my question is, how does the CIA, or how do we go about briefing Donald Trump when the person who's managing his campaign 
um, seem to have interests that are not necessarily national interests, perhaps economic interests. Um, what, what, what happens in those cases? I've been reading about this in USA Today and some other publications. Hey, Sharon, thank you very much for your call. What about that? Well, so I'd say maybe just a couple of process issues at note, uh, note. Sharon, you're right that basically once the candidates have been nominated, that uh, formal security briefings kick in. So literally a couple of days after the conventions, the Office of the National uh, ODNI, they call it, the, uh, the National Intelligence Directorate, uh, basically begins their briefings on these candidates. I wouldn't call it full briefings, but uh, but they start the process to get them aware of the of the situations that we have around the world. Uh, you know, in the case of Paul Manafort, and I, I would sort of generalize it out a little bit. The, the, the folks, these, these prospective nominees, the folks who would eventually serve in the administration, go through a very thorough vetting process. And this would be anyone who would serve. So I, maybe I won't speak in, on specifics of Paul, but at the same time, for folks who are, who are coming in, it's a very thorough process. And it's really interesting. It's so complicated. Basically, every Senate-confirmed position, so there's about 1,100, 1,200 Senate-confirmed position, they all go through what is essentially top-secret they call it SCI clearances. I mean, these are going back to when you're 18 years old. They're looking at where you're flying to, who you're talking to. Uh, so in the case of Paul Others, they would go through a process like that. It's interesting. You've had a lot of nominees, folks who are actually wanting to serve in government, who are very well qualified, drop out because the process is so complex, and they generally don't know what they're getting into uh, when they start the process. They didn't realize it was going to be so cumbersome. They didn't realize they'd have to sell this or sell that. Uh, that's something we're really trying to change is really to ex- educate these nominees to say, here's what you're going to go through. Uh, here's the expectations of the, the amount of scrutiny that's going to be on you and not just you, but your family. Uh, but at the end of the day, these are the results and you're really going to make a, a huge impact on the public and you can really improve uh, the way things work. As you have mentioned that uh, your organization is, uh, you know, uh, nonpartisan. Uh, so I don't expect you to talk uh, well or negative about any one candidate. But Donald Trump uh, has been described as improvising his cam- campaign a little bit along the way. So uh, I know there are some concerns about how organized the transition would be. Now, I understand that just yesterday that Trump uh, named New Jersey Governor Chris Christie to lead his transition team. You said that all the candidates have worked with uh, the, the center. What about the Trump campaign? Certainly, yeah. They've certainly been working very closely with us. Uh, they were at our off-site several weeks ago. And again, they took it very seriously. And I, I, I admire particularly that team. I mean, it, it's a small, there's a, certainly a small core team. It's been very unorthodox, but it's not like unlike, there, there are other campaigns in history that have been very similar that are what I would call are sort of outside, outsider type campaigns that draw from talent pools like they have drawn from. Uh, I'd say they're taking it very seriously. They see it as a the parallel of a corporate takeover as well. I think that identifies with them. And with the appointment of Governor Christie, uh, that's a step in the right direction for them. Uh, matter of fact, they're really the first one out of the gate to formally announce a transition team, which we which we really applaud. And we'd ask the other candidates to, to step out a little bit, too, and to go ahead and, and, and uh, announce their formal candidacies for transition. And one thing you can say about uh, Governor Christie is that uh, now it's on a smaller scale, but he has gone through a transition from his predecessor as governor of New Jersey to becoming governor. So, uh, you know, he does have a little bit of a background there, although, again, uh, scale and size a little bit different. 
Uh, it is. Yeah, so it's a little different, and, and it's tricky, too. I mean, that's, that chairman role is a very important role. They're making very critical decisions on behalf of the candidate. It's important that they have the trust and loyalty of the candidate. Actually, that, to me, is number one. And then number two really is knowledge around transition and experience there, because I think there are resources now like ours that can help them get up to speed. I'll say it's difficult with him having a full-time job, though. It's a difficult – it's going to be a difficult thing for him to do. Uh, and so when we've been asking the Trump folks is you're going to need a strong COO, essentially, in transition to manage the day-to-day. What motivation does an outgoing president have to make a transition that is without problems? Yeah, you know, I'd say there's a couple. It's a great question, by the way. I think there's a couple of things at play. One is just simply legacy. Um, you know, as you're sort of rounding third base, to use a bad sports analogy, uh, you often reflect on your time in the presidency, and you want to leave it better than you found it. And they sort of, uh, I guess they think about their candidacy that way. And so there's a, there's a legacy aspect to leave the things better. I'd say secondly, too, from a priority standpoint, they're thinking about how to institutionalize their priorities. What The last thing they want uh, is to have their mandate all the way to the end of their term to inauguration, and the new guy come in and just erase everything. And so transition for them is also how do we institutionalize these priorities, that the priorities that we've done over the last seven or eight years, uh, how do we ensure that they stick around? What are they? And then how can our agencies basically sprint to the finish? Because what would happen naturally, it's just human nature. Uh, employees are thinking about their next jobs. The political folks are. The the federal uh, civil servants are thinking about who their next boss is going to be. And so you can very easily lose traction at this point. But if you tie it to transition, you can sprint to the finish. You can talk about priorities to the last day, and you can really improve your legacy. And I think that combination is what uh, uh, works for the, at least the last two modern presidents. So uh, what will the Center for Presidential Transition be doing over the next eight months? And will it change once there is a new president elected in November? You know, so I'd say we're, we're, we would do what we're doing now, and that's working with all of them. You know, we have a whole set of resources and partners. Uh, we work very closely with folks like at the Boston Consulting Group. They're helping us solve these complex problems. Uh, so we, we have a set of resources. We have all the files from the Bush and Romney and Obama transition that we're synthesizing and trying to make useful for the new teams. We've got a set of engagements with them. Over the next six to nine months, we'll be meeting several times all together, uh, as well as customized engagements for them to get them up to speed. Uh, because there are various phases. This is sort of the setup phase where they're getting ready. Uh, they'll only have maybe 10 or 12 folks up until the convention. But as soon as they're formally announced, as soon as they're formally the, the nominee post-convention, government services kick in, these teams will grow drastically. You'll go from 12 to 200, essentially, in a month or two. And these are that's like a massive startup. And so you're going to need a lot of support and help, and that's what we're really trying to work with these guys on. And again, end of the day, I think, call it 200 days after the inauguration, nearly a year after you've been elected, uh, we'll continue to work with them. But at the end of the day, then we should see the results of our efforts. And if, if the new teams have doubled or tripled the amount of appointees they've gotten through, they've gotten their entire cabinet, subcabinet, and what I'd call mission critical support in place, uh, if they're already executing on their campaign promises with minimal blips, uh, and if they have a good relationship with Congress, at the end of the day, I think we've done our job. We can learn from that and get ready for the next transition. David Eagles is the director of the Center for Presidential Transition. Thank you very much uh, for uh, talking with us today. Learned a lot and be looking for some of these things over the next eight months. Mr. Eagles, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate your listeners as well. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Do you have a favorite restaurant? Or are you someone who likes to visit and sample a lot of uh, restaurants or eating establishments out there? You no doubt base your opinion of a restaurant on the food it serves, the taste, 
the service, and maybe the atmosphere. But do you know whether those restaurants are clean and are meeting state health and safety standards? According to an investigative report in the York Daily Record, it's not that easy to find out if a restaurant is out of compliance or has violations. Joining us is Brett Schultes, the business reporter for the York Daily Record, who did this investigation and wrote the story. Brett, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. And if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Brett, here's the, the broadest question of all. How do we know the restaurants where we're eating are safe? Well, uh, you, you, unless you're willing to ask the restaurant to see the report when you walk in the door, uh, it's really somewhat difficult to determine uh, whether that restaurant is, has passed its most recent inspection. Well, now why is that? The way the system is set up in Pennsylvania, um, restaurants are not required to post their most recent inspection results uh, on on the restaurant at the restaurant they are also there is no just to clarify unlike uh, many states uh, there is no ABC or yellow red green rating system so there's no uh, quick way for somebody to determine whether or not the restaurants out uh, in or out of compliance basically um, you uh, would have to walk up to the front desk of the restaurant and uh, ask an employee to see the most recent inspection report. But I see the inspection results in uh, area newspapers all the time, including your own, that uh, you have the the results in there each week. (laughs) Right. Well, that's uh, kind of what uh, sparked this this story. I compile the uh, results every week, and um, a question that often came up uh, among our readers um, was just, you know, they'd say, well, I saw this this restaurant seems like they were just um you know they were just here a week or two ago and and they just failed their their other inspection a week or two ago so how many times have they failed and that was really the question that led me uh to look a little bit further into it now a few things um back to your point a few things with that um in what we publish in 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 our weekly report oftentimes that information's already a couple weeks old uh it's good information i think the public chooses uh to use it as one way to help make smart decisions about where they um, eat, but uh, it isn't the most um, recent uh, information. So it doesn't provide the full picture. In fact, sometimes by the time we're reporting on a restaurant being out of compliance, uh, sometimes it's then uh, gone and corrected the problem. But, you know, had you eaten there two weeks ago, there may have been a broken uh, freezer or, uh, you know, food... um, raw food stored over uh, ready-to-eat food or something of that nature that could be um, a threat to public health. Mm. Uh, you know, well, let me, do it, let me do it this way. Let me ask you to walk us through the process of the inspections and if there are violations, if a restaurant is in compliance. What is the process? Sure, sure. And first of all, let me just say that it, it, at the end of this whole thing, what this all comes down to really is foodborne illnesses and, and public safety. Uh, and it is it is a very real thing. Uh, Centers for Disease Control estimates that 48 million Americans get sick from a foodborne illness every year. Uh, that's one out of six people. Uh, about 128,000 are hospitalized and 3,000 die from those illnesses each year. So that's really what this is all about is, is – uh, trying to decrease the odds that a person is going to get a foodborne illness. Yeah, um, I have to tell you, let me interrupt you for just a second. When I saw that in your story, uh, that number 
shock me. 48 million Americans get sick from foreign uh, foodborne illnesses each year. I mean, that, that one out of six people, that's a lot right. of people. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and actually, um, you know, some have said that number could be even higher than that because it's, it's pretty hard to track a foodborne illness. And oftentimes a person eats somewhere and then just a, f- a few days later they might feel really sick and they don't always know exactly why or exactly what did it. And it can be rather hard to prove. And that's why, um, you know, perhaps uh, we rely somewhat on state regulations to uh, enforce this and, and make sure the restaurants um, are concerned with it themselves because otherwise, you know, it's not that easy for a person to just come to a restaurant and say, you know, you gave me, uh, you know, a foodborne illness. Mm. All right. So I interrupted you. Uh, walk me right. through the process. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are really a, a handful of types of inspections. When a, res- when a new restaurant restaurant opens up, it's going to get an opening inspection uh, to make sure that it can serve food. And then from there on out in Pennsylvania, a restaurant should get inspected about once a year on average. Now, certain facilities uh, will get inspected more often than that. I believe, for example, um, schools. Uh, I believe they get inspected twice a year, if I remember correctly. So a restaurant will get inspected. And you have to keep in mind, you know, I, I called through over 7,000 individual um, inspections in the database. And the uh, great majority of restaurants will never even appear on the list at all because they'll pass their annual inspections. It's somewhat common for a restaurant to fail an occasional inspection. Now, that would mean that, for example, the inspector might, um, they sort of have a bit of a metric for it. They can fail a certain number of things, but the inspector is going to be looking for things, anything from is the space clean, um, are are they following p- proper food storage protocols and things of of that nature? Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. But it brings another up another question: What happens if uh, there is a violation? What right. the restaurant is cited? Right. So that's what our readers were seeing a lot of because they would see restaurants fail time and time again. If a restaurant fails an inspection, it's uh, uh, it's basically told, well, we're going to be back uh, for a follow-up inspection, and, and they're given directives as to you know how to uh, how to improve their situation. Now, does that restaurant close down? There are some instances where a restaurant will be temporarily closed down because it has failed its inspection for reasons that threaten imminent uh, health and public safety. For example, if you had uh, a rodent infestation, which happens, uh, they might temporarily close that down. The public will not know about it unless they happened to come to the restaurant during that period of time when it was closed down, which could be, you know, an hour, a day, or a week. Um, so then they, then they basically can, then, then the inspectors will come back and check the restaurant again. Now that could happen two, three, four times in a row. The restaurant could be out of compliance that whole time. They could be out of compliance for a month or two months, and during that whole time, the public could be coming and going and eating there with absolutely no idea that the restaurant had been out of compliance for over a month. And that does happen. And, you know, after reading your story, I thought to myself, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, just the example you listed, a rodent infestation. Now, let's face it, there's food there and a big operation. It can be difficult to control mice, 
Hopefully we're not talking about rats or anything like that. But still, if I saw that there was an establishment that had a rodent infestation, I'd be less likely to eat there. But you're saying they can go two months without anyone even knowing that. Yeah, and that's all we're trying to do here is inform the public so that they can make their choices based on you know whatever whatever they want they want to make um you know I've, you know to to be clear the the state uh uh, director of the um, of the Department of Agriculture has made clear that if there was an imminent hazard, they're going to handle that right then and there. Um, you know, I've I've had some people who I interviewed for the story say, when they look at a restaurant, however, that routinely fails its inspection, that sends them a signal that maybe that restaurant doesn't care about. Uh, safety and health as much as they would want them to. So, you know, we want to we want to have a transparent system so that people can make educated decisions. Um, and that's why, you know, we've I've, I've had people say, well, it's very awkward to, you know, especially if you have a family in tow, walk into a restaurant, you've already sort of committed to eating there by going there. And now you have to go up to the front desk, ask for an inspection report, and then presumably decide whether or not to eat there. That sounds ridiculous. I'll be, I'm being honest with you. That sounds ridiculous. I'd feel like, I, you know, I would feel awkward very much so asking about that. We have a phone call from Bruce who has a very good question. Bruce is from Lancaster. You're on the air. Oh, good morning. Good morning. I, you've been talking about one way of getting this inspection report is to ask the restaurant for it. But isn't there, can't you get it from the government entity that actually does the inspections? Can't you go that way and, and just do it ahead of time? Absolutely, Brad. So you can go on the uh, website that they provide, um, and that was one one of the big elements of uh, my investigation because that's the d uh, data portal that I use on a weekly basis to conduct the restaurant health inspection report that I do. I will say a few things about that. It's extremely difficult to use over a phone because there is no mobile phone app. It's somewhat mm. difficult to find. The records can be difficult to understand unless you do it regularly like I do, and they don't provide always the most recent information. So I compared uh, our system in Pennsylvania with some of the other states out there. And just one example, for example, uh, Orange County, California runs a, a food info website that will provide information pretty much within a day or so of the inspection. So oftentimes in Pennsylvania you're going to be waiting until the inspector uploads that, which could take a week or longer. So, you know, it, it is out there, and that was that was basically why the headline of the story was, you know, you can find out, uh, but it's not it's not that easy. So, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, but don't you agree it should be easy? I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, what, what, thank okay, you very much. okay, thanks for your call. But Brett, how could it be easier? I mean, you you mentioned Orange County in California. All right, that sounds like uh, just a question of timing. But how else could it be easier? Well, you know, I, I, I think that we can I, – I don't, I don't want to prescribe a solution uh, necessarily, but we did compare um, what, what happens in Pennsylvania with some other states. And some of, some of the people I spoke to for the story, you know, pointed out that um, the, the, the rating systems provide one way for people to see without walking into the restaurant – uh, whether the restaurant has passed its most recent inspection. Now, even even that a rating system, that's going to require some changes in policy and some new rules. And some would argue that those pose problems of their own. 
uh, and I can cite a few stories on that. Yeah, because we do have a, an email here from a listener, John in Harrisburg, says, why don't we have a rating system and a posting requirement? Well, uh, Allegheny County tried to get one, uh, and they looked into it, and uh, ultimately uh, it was decided uh, not to go with it. So I don't know the, the full answer to that question. Now, I can say, you know, having spoken to the National Restaurant Association, uh, they did point out, you know, that those systems themselves aren't without problems. Um, for example, uh, in New York, uh, in New York, 95% of restaurants receive A grades in large part because there's a state appeals process. So a restaurant gets a B grade, they go to an appeal, and it gets upgraded to an A after further review. So I think that you know we need to look beyond simply is is changing it to a to a letter system going to you know, make everything better. I don't know the answer to that, and I wouldn't want to prescribe that, but I can say that uh, even if the report itself was posted on the exterior window, that would probably go a little ways as to keeping people from having to walk in the building before they uh, make that decision. From your investigation and what you wrote, it sounds as if the state is pretty satisfied with the system we have in place. Well, uh, the state worked with me very, very closely on this, and they, um, I, you know, I, I think, I think they want to do the right thing. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if, if complacent is the right way to characterize it. I will say they've looked into a mobile um, app. Um, I think a mobile app might be something, one more thing that would help people in this day and age make those decisions. Yeah, because you, know, you use your phone when you, you know, many people, when they're deciding on a restaurant, they'll look on their phone for restaurants or look at the menu. This could be another thing that they could access on their phone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that would that would make it a lot easier. And again, it refer, for for me, I really am just thinking about transparency and educated uh, decisions and that would be one more way to help that. Our guest during this portion of the program is Brett Schultz, the business reporter for the York Daily Record. He did an investigation on restaurant inspections in York County and looked out to, looked at some other states as well. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. But we only have about six minutes left, so I'd encourage you if you have a question to uh, call in as soon as you can or send that email. Uh, David does have an email here. He says, uh, so if I do get sick from eating food from a restaurant, what's the best way to handle it? Call the restaurant? Call the health department? I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that question. <laughs> but one thing I can say is that inspectors, health inspectors do follow up on complaints. Uh, one category of inspection that I often come across in the database is a complaint-based one. So if you have a complaint with a restaurant and you, f and you file that complaint through the state database, someone will go to that restaurant and take a look. Um, but it, but as, as I said, I mean, it's very difficult to track that illness unless there's a full-on outbreak of an illness. It's hard to, tr to prove that it was that restaurant that gave you that illness. In fact, I didn't include this in my story uh, because I couldn't quite find a place to put it, but the one gentleman I talked to, uh, Mr. Detweiler, who's a professor at Northeastern University, um, the whole reason he got involved in restaurant inspections and public safety was that his infant son was one of the children who died 
in the um, Jack in the Box outbreak uh, of E. coli in the early 90s. So this is, you know, at the, at the end of the day, this is very real stuff that has real consequences. What are the most uh, common violations that uh, we see in Pennsylvania restaurants? Uh, it might be hard for me to, to say what the most common ones are, but I could say a few of them, which would certainly include um, <clears throat> food that is stored improperly, for example, raw food stored near ready-to-eat food, uh, food inspection employees that are not properly attired, um, areas that aren't properly sequestered off for, for food preparation. You know, if you're it's it's that complacency aspect. If you're a food employee and maybe you're you have a personal drink or something like that in the area, uh, you might be you know you might think it's no big deal to have that where you're cooking, but you're not supposed to have that. Th- those are a few. Um, some of the more serious ones definitely include the infestations, rodents, flies, as well as um, uh, portions of the uh, food storage facility not working correctly, such as freezers or uh, or uh, heaters or things of that nature. Yeah, where the food temperatures are not uh, what they're supposed to be uh, to be safe. You know, now, Brett, you didn't address this as far as I know. I know you didn't in the story, but I have often heard people say, and, you know, you don't have to react to this if you don't want to, <laughs> but I've often heard people say that you can tell how clean a restaurant is by its restroom. <laughs> Did anyone say anything like that to you? <laughs> well, you know, I spoke with an, uh, a former state inspector who had gone on to open up a, uh, a consulting business, and he didn't say that per se with, the, with regard to the restroom. But one thing that I found very telling that he said, uh, and this is, you know, more correlation than anything, but he's observed that restaurants where the owner is often or always there on site tend to be restaurants that fail, or I'm sorry, tend to be restaurants that pass their inspections more often. In other words, when the when the owner is there and is concerned with their business, things tend to be clean. Um, sometimes, as he said, it's the rest. It's the ones that have really gotten kind of bigger and expanded, and maybe the person's no longer on site. They tend to fail a little more often. And that's a that's a complete generalization, but that's one that he um, that he uh, pointed out. How do the restaurants react to this? I would imagine that this is not good for business if you have multiple violations. No, it isn't, and. And the the weekly uh, report that we put out um, is definitely something that affects their businesses. I've been told that um, uh, by some restaurant owners that uh, they lost a lot of business after um, a failure. I mean, I, I think there is that aspect, though, where uh, it's one more way that they are incentivized to uh, to change their act. And some of them have done that. They've come in and hired new managers. They've um, brought in different uh, head cooks and basically changed their business practices because they knew they couldn't keep failing inspections if they wanted to stay in business. We had a caller who didn't want to go on the air, but just wanted to point out that uh, elevator inspections are posted in the elevator. Why not restaurants? And <laughs> I guess he, he, he makes a point there. We only have about 45 seconds, Brad. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. What was the takeaway that you got from this? Uh, you know, I, I think I think the takeaway is that uh, it might maybe hard, a little bit hard to sum up, but I would say that if I was not somebody who does this on a weekly basis and that is accustomed to culling through data, I would feel very hard pressed to be able to make an informed decision uh, about where where a place was safe to eat. 
you know, I, I would feel like I, I would want a little bit more information, information that would be a little bit easier to uh, to access and make sense of. Mm-hmm. Brett Schultz is the business reporter for the York Daily Record. We'll have a link to your article on our website, WITF.org. Brett, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. We have a partnership, WITF, that is, has a partnership with the York Daily Record, and we're always glad to uh, hear from York Daily Record uh, reporters on the program. Coming up on tomorrow's program, reports that sexually transmitted diseases are increasing across the country.